Welcome to the Construction Career Podcast with Cliff and Kent, where we explore different areas of the construction industry to shed light on what life is like in companies across the field to help you build your career to your own specification. This episode of the Construction Career Podcast is brought to you by Wilson and Hampton Painting Contractors. Wilson and Hampton has been the premier painting contractor in Southern California since 1923. From concurrent projects at LAX and the historical restoration of the Salk Institute to decorative painting and gold leafing in LDS temples around the world. Whether working in the field or in-house refinishing shop, Wilson and Hampton can provide you with the quality and experience needed to make your next project a success. Hey everybody, it's Kent. I promise it's the last time I will bother you for at least a month. With your help, we were nominated for the Construction Junkies Best Construction Podcast in 2018. Now we need your votes to see if we can win this thing. You can Google Construction Junkie Best Construction Podcast 2018 or go to our website, constructioncareerpodcast.com, or look for us on Facebook. Thanks, everyone, for supporting us. Please reach out and let us know what you think. You can always find me at kent at constructioncareerpodcast.com. We would love to hear your stories, and especially where you're from. And now, let's get on with this month's episode. Welcome to the Construction Career Podcast with Cliff and Kent. Uh, Today, we're interviewing Bruno Piana. Bruno is the... Deputy Project Manager yep. for the Delta LAX remodel? or what, What's the actual title, I guess? Deputy Director in Charge of Operations. Deputy Director in Charge of Operations. Yeah. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Bruno, how old are you? I'm 45. 45? Yeah. Okay. You've been in construction since? I started right out of college in 1997. I went to college in Mexico, and, and you have to do your senior thesis to be able to get a degree and to be able to get a license. So I did that for a year, and after that I started working in Cabo San Lucas in 1997. So I guess it'll be 21 years. Yeah. What was yeah. your thesis? You're going to laugh at me, Cliff. This is, this is really nerdy stuff. I did my thesis on the cryogenic treatment of reinforcing steel. So when I was in college, I figured out that there was these people doing cryogenic treatment of metals. And the idea is that if you subject a metal to super low temperatures, like minus 300 degrees Fahrenheit, it will fundamentally change the crystalline structure of the metal. Makes it stronger? Makes it stronger in some ways. It creates these little crystals in between the layers that prevent the layers from slipping. So I thought, well, maybe, well, does this work for rebar? You know, because they, they have done a lot of tests on abrasion for for things that wear, wear and tear of steel, and it worked. I'm like, well, does it work for tension? You know, if, if you, essentially, you know, it's layers of steel slipping against each other. So so I did that. I, I took a bunch of rebar in my in my suitcase uh, to the place where they do this. And this is obviously pre-9-11. I could have a bunch of rebar in my suitcase. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody asked me any questions. <laughs> Just bring a rebar. Yeah, just, yeah, just just some rebar. <laughs> so I went to a place in Decatur, Illinois, where they they were doing this cryogenic treatment. They did it for free. They just wanted a copy of the results. Yeah, yeah. They're like they, they they thought it was the neatest thing that I was doing this right. So it turns out that it doesn't affect the properties of rebar that much. It does, but just just enough to be slightly above your normal breaking Standard. strength. Yeah. Yeah, so so you you gain a tiny bit of strength, but obviously not enough that it justifies justifies the cost. Yeah, freezing a bunch of rebar. So, so did it ever cross your mind that your thesis is how you got the job at NASA? <laughs> <laughs> no, it had nothing to do with it. But you know the, the funny part is that in order for me to understand what what was going on, I had to read this book in the library. It was a mechanical metallurgy book 
this was in one of our university class, our college classes. So I had to learn everything I could about mechanical metallurgy. So I just really nerded out on it. And I guess that's been one of the things in, in my life that I've, I'm always looking to, what else can I learn? You know, in, in some cases like this, it doesn't really apply to a lot of things. Right. You're not going to use it on a daily basis. I certainly am not, no. But I know quite a bit about mechanical metallurgy now. So. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, we had talked about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, school. You went to school in Mexico. I did, yeah. Can you kind of compare and contrast how, how the program was and, and give people that are going to school here in the States an idea of what it's like outside of the country? Sure. Well, I, I, haven't, I haven't been to college here. Right. I, I've been to a bunch of colleges here recruiting people. And I know a lot of people that have been to school here and one, one of the differences is that in Mexico you normally you go to a four-year school you pick your degree when you start when you start so I went to school for civil engineering and I had four years of civil engineering I didn't have two years of general ed courses within the four years they sprinkled psychology and they you know they, they, they make you take one or one or two subjects every semester that really have nothing to do with engineering. But semester one, I was taking soil mechanics. I was taking concrete structure. I was taking a bunch of engineering, civil engineering related classes. Obviously a lot of math, a lot of algebra, a lot of this other stuff. That some of those subjects are shared among all engineering classes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you, you have eight semesters of structures. That's the other thing that, that in the US, there's, there's a specialty for structural engineering. In Mexico, civil engineers, are usually structural engineers too because you have eight semesters of structural design so i mean there's not really that separation there's not there's not really that specialty of oh i'm a structural engineer but i didn't go to school for civil engineering you go to school for civil engineering and you graduate being able to design structures so that's the difference that you get exposed to certain subjects that i've known that in the states there's some schools that offer some of those classes as masters Degree programs. master's programs uh, that get into more of the fancy design, I would say. But that was part of our, you know, last couple semesters in the four-year program in Mexico. So it was it was pretty interesting. So when you come out of school mm-hmm. from Mexico, you are ready to go to work. Yes, technically you're supposed to do your thesis. You can do your thesis during the, your last year. Mm-hmm. Then you defend your thesis in a panel of experts and they ask you questions and they decide decide whether or not you belong in the professional world with them, right? And then you, you get your stamp, basically, and you can go design civil engineering structures and structures and all this stuff. So you, you can go to work right after you leave school. I don't know whether or not you're ready any more than here. <laughs> right. <laughs> I certainly wasn't ready, but... Uh, well, you know... If you get a degree in architecture, depending mm-hmm. on where you go to school, if you go to one of the big five schools, as they call them, like if you go to Harvard or Princeton or Yale, or now I think Rice is one of the big five, right. they teach you a lot about design mm-hmm. because they think you're going to be running stuff mm-hmm. and all that other, you know, ordinary workaday <laughs> stuff. We don't, we don't worry about that. <laughs> so you're not ready to go to work for anybody. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I went there, I interviewed, I went to the school and I interviewed the school. Oh, you was, did? Oh, yeah. <laughs> which this, was this the sound, only way I got in. This sounds like you. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked him, I said, well, do you guys do drawing classes? And the guy who ran the program said, no. <laughs> he goes, you'll, 
We just expect you to figure that out. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah. You have to learn how to draw. Yeah. It's just like, you'll learn. I did learn how to draw with India ink when I was in high school. We had, and, and we had some drafting classes, too. That was cool. Yeah. I liked it. Hey, that's that's all part of the field. <laughs> I guess. You know, I get stuff you can draw from. <laughs> so what what college did you go to or what university did you it's go to? It's called ITESO, I-T-E-S-O. Okay. It's Technical Institute of the West. Okay. Something like that. And then from there, I mean, you, did you get your stamp? Or you I did. I, I did. It's not an actual stamp. It's it's uh, they call it a cedula, which is right. a, an ID that says you're a civil engineer. You can go design whatever you want. And is that good in America? No, no, no. It's not. No, no. So the, the in in America, the program is totally different. You have to go through a bunch more of more internships, more on the job training. You have to be an EIT before you become a PE, et cetera. Not in Mexico. You you graduate. You do your thesis. Here's your stamp. You go work. Off right. you go. Off you go. And away you run. I don't know if that's better. To be honest with you, I like the EIT idea too, okay. for you to work under somebody that has done it for a while and understand really how to do it. What it takes. Yeah, yeah. From there, was it difficult when you came to the state? Was there any transition you had to do? I think so. I was working. I worked in Cabo for a number of years, and right out of college. Right out of Cabo. college. Yeah, I went to Cabo. And what'd you do in Cabo? Uh, well, I started as a field engineer, and my first job in Cabo was I was a field engineer in one high-end custom home right on the beach. I mean, I was on the sand, and I set up my plant table, <laughs> and I had an ocean view, and it was the greatest thing ever. So I was a field engineer for a general contractor there for a number of, uh, for maybe about a year. Then I switched over to work for a guy that ran a specialty subcontracting business. We did MEP design and construction. Or high-end homes mostly and it was everything from generators to buying the lighting designing lighting designing all the MEP installations pumps off-the-grid systems treatment plants it was I mean it was absolutely everything which was great for me because there was never a dull moment I'm like why am I designing electrical circuits for these guys I'm like all right well I guess I can so, <laughs> nobody told you, you nobody did yeah, nobody told me not to so I'll do it <laughs> So that was a lot of fun. So I was there for another probably three years until I moved here. And it, it was different. So I when, I when I left Cabo, I left sort of like a project engineer. And I started here as a field engineer. You know, and, I, and, and it was a conscious decision on my part to accept the job at entry-level position. Right. You know, I'm four years out of school, you're not that much into it. I said, let's learn it the way it's supposed to be learned. I want to know how to do it the right way. So I want to do all the jobs. So I started as a field engineer here on a job in Victorville. A prison that you think you did too, right? Mm-hmm. Is it in here? Is it in the other? It's office? in the other. Office. We got a picture of the prison. We we'll were going to show Bruno it, to yeah. see if it was the same building. <laughs> it might, it, I think it was. So, did you get? Were you recruited by Hensel Phillips? I wasn't. I was looking for a job. I, I met my wife in Cabo, and we dated remotely for about a year. After a year of flying back and forth and all these like long distance phone calls, which used to be expensive, yeah. You know? International phone calls were expensive back then. We, we said, okay, this is enough. We, I mean, we're spending a lot of money on this. So either you move to Cabo and practice lighting design in Cabo, or I move to L.A. and find a job there. There weren't a lot of opportunities for lighting designers in Cabo at, the point, at that point in time. Through a friend of my wife's that worked at Hensel Phelps, she said, hey, they're looking for people. And I said, okay. So I, I came and interviewed with, with HP, and they offered me a job as a field engineer in Victorville, which is... It was a lot of fun because, you know, I had been a field engineer, so I, I kind of enjoyed it. It was, it was, 
it was like doing it again, knowing what you're doing. Yeah, you go into oh, it, you're I, not I, going into it blind this time. Right. At, well, at least I thought I knew what I was doing. And but it was fun. It was fun to do that. It was it was a blast. Other than being in Victorville. Yeah. <laughs> the transition from living in Cabo to now I live in Victorville. I'm like, what? Well, the travel's almost as bad. <laughs> yeah, you I know. know. To, get back, to get back to LA. <laughs> it was bad. So I'm talking a little bit about, you know, as, as you got students, mm-hmm. especially maybe in Mexico, that are, that are thinking about coming to the States. Yeah. Or students that are in college right now. Would you say that working for a specialty contractor, I mean, that didn't affect your career? No, it didn't affect my career at all. As a matter of fact, if anything, I think it informed me uh, on a lot of the well, the business model of the of, of the specialty contractors is totally different than general contractors. Mm. So it showed me what specialty subs do that's totally different than what GCs do, which I enjoyed. And when I left Cabo, the contractor I worked for was starting to do more general contracting stuff. So I saw it from both sides. So that's that's pretty interesting. So, no, it won't affect your career. If anything, it'll help your career in the long run. Because you see it kind of from both sides. You see it from both sides. You understand the specialty subs work a lot better than if you're just looking at what they're doing. So, it can't hurt. Well, and that you know, the thought maybe is some of these kids that are in school and they're mm-hmm. looking for an internship, and they have their sights set on a general, well, you know, maybe a, a subcontractor or something is not, it's only going to benefit you in the long run. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I know that a lot of kids look for internships with GCs, but their horizon needs to be a little bit more expanded, you know. Look for opportunities where they are for you to learn things. It doesn't matter what exactly you're learning as long as you're learning things, as long as you're learning something new, like the painting business, you know. It, I don't know enough about it, but, you know, why not learn it? It's, yeah. I mean. It's, it's only going to benefit you the more you know. Absolutely. So you started with Hensel Phelps as a, as a field engineer, basically almost like a demotion. I was the best field engineer. <laughs> <laughs> How long were you with Hensel Phelps? I was at HP with six, for 16 years, yeah, until 2016. And what was your progression at Hensel Phelps? After I did my stint as an FE in Victorville, I went over to be an office engineer, which is almost like a lateral move in, yep. in HP, you know, to process submittals and RFIs and, you know, look at drawings and all, all this. All the thousands and thousands of pieces of paperwork that you, you know, have to get done on a daily basis. I know. It was a lot easier back then. I didn't have to process nearly as many. I was the only office engineer on that project. It was a lab in Pomona College, and I was the only OE. I was working with a project engineer. We had a field engineer, a superintendent, and it was a very small group of people. It was maybe like seven of us or something. Oh, like an O'Neill job. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it was a small job. It was maybe $20 million lab or something. Okay. But a lot of fun. Those small jobs are so much fun. So I did the, the OE, the office engineer position there. Then the guy that was a project engineer trained me to be a project engineer. So he showed me how to do the schedule updates, of the billings to the owner, the sub-billings, all the cost controls, and all the other stuff that I had no idea how, how to do. So he sat me down and taught me over a series of months. Then he got promoted to the field as an era super, and I took over as project engineer for that project. After that, we went to do a, it was a high school in L.A. Uh, with LAUSD, and I started as a project engineer on that on that job, and I set up the project as a PE. I was working with a number of OEs, and we had some, you know, field engineers and air superintendents and all that. So I started as a project engineer on that on that job, and I finished the job as an area superintendent. I was in charge of all the building envelope. We had like seven or eight different type of building envelope systems on that project. Bruno, give us a rundown, a description of these different 
jobs. Sure. Field engineer, office engineer, project engineer, area superintendent. Sure. So the, the titles are going to be di- a little bit different at every company. Right. But, but in, I'll speak from my experience at Hensel Phelps. A field engineer, back in those days, our primary job was to do layout and to run the work in the field, if you will. We needed to know the buildings better than anybody else. We needed to know the drawings better than anybody else. We we used to do lift drawings because back then, HP performed a lot of a lot of self-performed work, concrete. Yeah. So we needed to do all the drawings, all the shop drawings. They're really shop drawings for all the concrete. So it was the job of the field engineer to go do that, to do all the all the layout for for all the building elements and walls and footings and everything. You were literally out in the field all day. That was your job. And if you were caught in the office by a superintendent, he'd yell at you. <laughs> you're like a you, field engineer. You're a field engineer. Be in, Learn the field. What you be in the field. Why are you in the office? You're not an office engineer. <laughs> <laughs> but really, that's that. there's no better way to learn construction than being in the field with the people that are doing it. Especially because you're learning from the tradesmen. You're learning what they do, how they do it. You know, And we, we, we learned a bunch of things from the tradesmen. And not just from the people running the excavators, but the guys... Know, putting the rebar, the guys that are finishing the concrete. This and, doesn't look like this detail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it, it was an incredible learning experience, and, and I met a lot of great people. That, I mean, to this day, I have I still have friends that I met on, on, on that project as a field engineer. But, yeah, just being in the field as things happen, there's no substitute for that. There's no substitute than being there when things happen and you see how things are put together. Nobody's telling you. You know what it's supposed to look like on a drawing, then you see it go up with your own eyes. That's there's no no going around that. Now, from field engineer to office engineer, you're you're in the office doing all the paperwork. Yeah, so RFIs. Yeah, the office engineer at at HP, and which I guess it's the equivalent of of a PE in other companies. Their their job is to make sure that the submittals are correct. That to collect all the submittals from uh, subcontractors and suppliers make sure they're correct, to process all the RFIs, in many cases to process payments for subcontractors, to co- to participate in coordination sessions and meetings. But yeah, the, the work is primarily paperwork and, and office work. Is there much communication between the office and the field engineers? There needs to be. There needs to be a ton of communication. There's, I mean, field engineers do a lot of the RFIs as well, but really the, the people that in, in the office that know a lot of the scopes, they're assigned different scopes, office engineers, so if you want to know everything about drywall, go to the OE, that's the office engineer that's in charge of drywall. So yeah, field engineers and office engineers can be kid a lot in that regard. They're like, okay, so what detail are we using here? Are we okay to use this product versus this product, et cetera? So the are field engineers assigned specific scopes also? No, usually field engineers are, are assigned specific areas of the building. Okay. So you'll be in charge of this area, this building, then... Everything that happens in that building. So you see it from the ground. You see it from the ground up if you're lucky. Yeah. If you're lucky. There, I mean, obviously, depending on the project, there's some FEs that don't get to see that. They come to the project halfway later, through yeah. later. They're in the finishing. Yeah, they, they, and, and that's not as exciting in, in, many, in many cases. If you don't get to see the thing go up, you don't understand what mm-hmm. happened for it to go up. But I, the intent is for FEs to understand the whole process at some point. Now, the office engineers also do a lot of payment right i mean they're dealing with our rfcs or any changes Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff what what's the role of a project engineer the project engineer is the first role at hensel phelps in which you're in charge of other people in which you lead a team of people you lead a team of office engineers so as a project engineer typically you'd be doing some things with with finances okay 
uh, you'd, you'll be doing some cost controls for the company. You'll be in charge of a group of people that are doing certain scopes. If it's a small job, obviously you're going to be the only P on the job. You're going to be in charge of one or two OEs. You're going to do all the P6 Primavera schedule updates. You're going to do payment applications for the owner, review change orders from subs, get involved when there's conflict with like you know disputes and changes and stuff like that that cannot be resolved between the OEs and, and the subs. And in some cases, they can't. So the P gets involved, and if the P can resolve it, then the PM gets involved. And, it just and, goes up the chain. And so on, until the lawyers get it. <laughs> so the PE, he's in charge of all the internal coordination. And then I'm guessing that the project manager interfaces with with the client. Yeah, the the PE interfaces with the client quite a bit as well. So in in my experience as a PE, I, I did a lot of interfacing with our clients with with LAUSD when I was doing PE job and with Pomona College. But yeah, the PM manages the relationship, manages more of the commercial relationships with everyone on the project. But yeah, the details, a lot of the details are handled by the PE. And that's on purpose because the PE needs to see everything that happens as well, from the from the financial standpoint, from the schedule standpoint. They need to be informed of all this so that they know what what's happening on the project. That puts the PM in that position where he's not as vested in particular issues. It is true. It is true that it's, it's not as vested and can weigh in without the emotion mm-hmm. on certain issues. It doesn't always happen. Because I remember I worked with a PE at uh, the Ambassador Project, the Phase 1. That was my first job as a PM for Hensel Phelps. And I told the PE, he's a great great guy. And I told him, look, I can't go negotiate with, with the owner. I can't negotiate. And I can't do it because I'm, I'm getting really mad. And it's not going to be productive. And he's going to hear me. So why don't you try? Here's the result I want. I'm okay with this. So he goes, he's like, it's done. I'm like, ah, what? (laughs) So it was good from that standpoint. I mean, he wasn't invested in it. I was. But, yeah, it gives the PM the ability to to look at it a little bit more objectively. Well, when you have a smaller organization and you don't have all those tiers, I mean, I know most of the details on these issues. Mm -hmm. And it's just like. (laughs) I know. It's it's not always good to know all the details. Yeah, you get emotionally invested for sure. That's, yeah. That's when you call Kent and go, go solve that. <laughs> he doesn't call anybody. He yells at him. But the, so I, I guess yell. I project. project. We've had this conversation before. Well, once in a while. Yesterday I yelled. Maybe maybe did get a little upset yesterday. First time in a while, but it was good. Bruno, yep. you know, I guess a lot of these stuff, it's going to be as soon as you become productive in an area, then you can probably move on to the other. And I'm sure there's some time that they expect you to be as an engine, as a field engineer versus an office engineer Mm -hmm. do you feel like when you made the jump from office to project engineer is it because you like showed some interest in in trying to learn that aspect of it or or is it just gonna you just have to wait your time there's a couple things you you will never be ready right you will never be 100 percent ready to make that jump and that goes for a lot of other things in your career you're you're not going to be ready to take on every challenge that's presented in front of you but in many cases you're the guy that's filling the role for somebody else to move on so it was it was typical for us to say you got to train your replacement. Well, I happened to be the replacement to the guy that was being promoted, so he was motivated to teach me everything I knew. Mm-hmm. So you have to be ready. You can't you can't do it after a month of doing one job. You can't you know. There's got to be some time spent for you to learn the job you did, 
before you're ready to be move put, up to the next m- move up or move sideways to the next role whether it's six months or two years whatever it is you know use a time to really learn that position to l- learn as much as you can from that role you may never do that again you know like when i was an area superintendent i was an area super for about a year doing the building envelopes and, and i loved it you know my superintendent thought I wasn't very good, but I really enjoyed it. I was learning a lot. You know, I was working with all the craftsmen, and, and it was, you know, it was a great project. It was a, the, we had an atrocious architect who shall remain nameless. Right. But there was no details for anything. So we were making up details for waterproofing and, and for flashings and everything. And I remember sitting with, with the foreman for the sheet metal company, and we used to mock up flashings with cardboard. I'm like, can you do this? He goes, yeah, I could probably do this. So him and I would sit in the afternoons. We were like, okay, we need a de- detail for this, for this, for this. And he, he'd give me a pair of snips. He's like, you go, you go. So we'd start cutting things and mocking things up. And it was a great learning experience. That's the thing. you got to keep learning. That's, that's one of the, at, at least for me, it's one of the, the things that motivates me in, in life is continue to learn things. It doesn't matter what it is. But you The amount of transferable knowledge is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And and this day, there's no excuse for you not to learn something. It's so easy to yeah. to find people that are willing to teach it, whether it's online, whether it's live in person, in people the field. in the field. Yeah. I mean, one of the greatest things is go ask a good craftsman what he does, and he'll spend as much time as possible showing you because they're so proud of the work they do. So you know, if you're a field engineer, spend your time learning that learn from from the craftsmen that have been doing this for 30 years how they're doing it why they're doing it it's free knowledge why not go learn it right well and how are you going to move up if you don't learn what it is you're supposed to learn absolutely so you ask those questions as soon as you can and get those answers and and you'll just be that much more prepared when the time comes definitely now at Hensel Phelps is there a division between like field and office i don't know if when you decided to go superintendent is it like could you have chosen another round or is that typical progression as you'd go out in the field and then so different companies do it different way but for hensel phelps you're expected to be in the field and in the office so uh, the typical track for somebody that starts at hensel phelps is you'll be in the field as a field engineer and then go as an office engineer project engineer then you go out in the field as an area superintendent and after you've done that, then you you will have more natural abilities to be either be a project superintendent or a project manager. And those two are sort of parallel positions, the PM and the PS. I've, I've known people that, that started going down one path and they said, no, now I want to go in the field. And But it's important for you to know very well what the other all the other positions do. Project superintendents and project managers, do they have equal compensation? Similar. Wow, that's that's what W. Neal said. That's what Randy said. Yeah, the superintendents yeah. and the the project managers on par. It's almost a lateral move. Yeah, it's not unusual for them to have similar compensation. So they really do different things. They do vastly different. Vastly things. different. Vastly things. different things. They each have their own challenges. Each of those positions has has its own challenges. But I wouldn't say that one of the challenges is harder than the other. Right. So no, it's just a different. It's a playing field. Totally different. Because the area superintendent's coordinating his own people. Right. Plus he's interfacing with subcontractors at some level. The project manager's trying to keep everybody from getting in a fight. Now, there's a subtlety there. The project superintendent and the project manager 
are, are have similar compensation and are equal. Mm -hmm. The area superintendent is in, in charge of a part of the building. Part of the building. The project superintendent is in charge of the whole project. Yeah. So, yeah, he's managing a bunch of people. He's a managing a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. A bunch of people and a bunch of subcontractors. And a bunch of subs. So is the PM, though. The PM is managing all the project engineers, all the office engineers. You know, we don't interface with the project managers very much at all. I Maybe know. that's because we do a good job. <laughs> I think so. Let's get involved. I think so. I think, I mean... You'll interface with a project manager at buyout when you're purchasing the, yep. the, the scope. You'll interface with a PM at close-up, maybe, if there's something that's pending or something needs to be done. But generally, it's it's better if you're not interfacing with a project manager all the time. On a regular basis. On a regular <laughs> basis, yeah. It's it's probably best. So from, from there, you were area superintendent. You went into PM. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, did you what, did you enjoy the field more than the office? Were you happy with the way things were? No, going? I... I <laughs> I enjoyed the field a lot, but I think I was better at doing the office work. So I got promoted to project manager, and I took my first job in the ambassador phase one. That's where that's where I'm at Cliff. I had no idea that intumescent paint was a thing. I learned quickly, though. <laughs> How big that, was, of a that was a big project. Yeah, it was a hundred million dollars, something like that. The phase one, then phase one, phase one, then phase two of the of the ambassador was another three hundred million or three hundred fifty million. It was it was a whole city block in uh, where the Ambassador Hotel used to be. It was a, it was a good first project for me. I, I I learned a lot of things on that project, and and it was it was a very interesting way of learning things for me. Yeah, you, you got to learn it on the fly, you know, as you're doing it. So well, and you have the opportunity to pick it up. Yeah, yeah. From there, now, where did you go after Hansel Phelps? So I was a PM for Hansel Phelps for 2007, once Ambassador. So. Nine, nine years maybe. Mm -hmm. So after that, I was working at LAX, and then I went to work for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And I went to work for a group of people that are in charge of the construction of facilities at the lab. Uh, an amazing place, amazing group of people. And this is directly for NASA, right? I mean, yeah, so JPL is, is a NASA center. Right. It's an FFRDC, they call it. It's a federally funded research and development center. So 99% of its funding comes from NASA. The other 1% comes from dark sources that we should not talk about. That shall about. not be named. That shall not be named. So how did that transition occur? Was that a personal relationship with somebody? or No. Uh, while, I, while I was at, uh, working for Hensel Phelps, I thought to myself, you know, I, I ought to go learn something else. Because you'd been doing it for I've been doing years. it for a while. So I, I felt like I needed to learn something new. And I needed to, to take my, my career in a different direction. And out of nowhere, I'm like, well, what sounds good to, to go do, you know? I had been working at the airport for a number of years at that point, And it's, you know, it's the airport. It's, it's the not, airport. It's the airport. So I'm like, I need something else. I figured out that they were building things at JPL. I'm like, well, maybe I can go help them. And, yeah, I, I talked to, to one of the guys that works there. He's like, definitely, come over. We, we definitely need you. Let's do this. So you didn't find it on Craigslist or anything like no, that. No, I didn't find it on Craigslist. No, you know it's it's through through your through your network of people. You know it's and and that's what well, that's one of the things that most of the times in your career, it's not going to be the people in your close network that you find opportunities through. It's the people in your expanded expanded network, network that you're going to find opportunities through. So you ought to everyone ought to pay attention not only to your close relationships but to your expanded network 
And are you being a good resource to your expanded network? Don't just mooch off of your network, but are you a good resource for them as well? That's an important thing for, for everybody in the industry, in all industries, really. Yeah, that was a hoot to, to go work in Pasadena with, with JPL. It was, I mean, there was not a day that I was at the lab that I was not in awe of something else. And we were talking earlier. I was all of a sudden the stupidest person in the whole lab, you know. <laughs> you went from and, being the hotshot. Well, I, you know, I, I don't think I was a hotshot, but I, I, I held my own, right? And but what really you know, just occurred to me, so you're there with all these rocket, rocket scientists, rocket scientists right? for real, <laughs> and and they know how to build stuff. Well, but they don't really know. Some of them know how to build stuff, right? So, some of them know how to build stuff. There's a lot of mechanical engineers there. So they know how to build spacecraft. They know how to build missions to different planets, you know, robotic missions to Mars and Saturn and Europa or whatever. They also think they can build the buildings. They can frame a, <laughs> they can frame a room. Or oh, yeah. They're like, well, you, should, you ought to do it this way. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess so. Can't we cryogenically freeze the yeah. <laughs> No, 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 they're great people. They're, 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 I mean, I met a lot of interesting people at the lab, and they are experts in their, own, in their own fields, you know. They're very respectful. They're, okay, you guys figure out the construction. I just need it done before I need to start building my stuff in it. So it was, it was amazing to be there. Well, we were talking earlier. I mean, you know, some of the stuff that they're doing, there's not, like, building code for. Mm -mm. So, you know, you're figuring all that stuff out on the fly. Yeah, we were talking about uh, they wanted to build a large spacecraft assembly facility, which is a clean room, really, like a medical-grade clean room with a crane on it. Big enough that you could build a space shuttle inside of it. Well, not a shuttle, but uh, let's say like a, like a Hubble telescope inside. Right. right? They, they wanted the hook height to be at least 80 feet, so they can you know crane things at 80 feet. Or That's a big building. It's huge. We're talking, it's, it's gigantic, yeah. so it's tall. and. This thing has to be a clean room while, you know, it's also a spacecraft assembly facility. So we're discussing, you, you know, the fire protection for this building. Well, what classification is this? Well, there's no classification for this. Well, NASA has some guidelines, some federal guidelines that, oh, well, they need to be fire protected. Well, then it's not going to be a clean room. Well, it can be dry pipe or it can be some other stuff. Like you're making things up because there's no real guidelines or codes that cover that specific kind of structure. Let's say this is a spacecraft assembly facility that's also skiff rated secret stuff where they build uh, secret satellites yeah there you go well the, what governs that so it's it's really amazing and and the lab has been put together like that over the years you know there's people have just been building things they need how they need them because there's the you know the jurisdiction is well is it is it la or is, is it, it is it federal <laughs> or is it la county or la city oh but we're in la cañada Oh, or are we? Well, part of it is in Pasadena too. So, it's 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 really interesting that that whole thing. Who does the building inspection? Building inspection is done by lab personnel, but we are we are supposed to comply with LA code, LA city code. JPL is part of Caltech. That's what I thought. It is. So your paycheck comes from Caltech, even though you work for JPL. So Caltech has a contract with NASA. It says we're going to run your your center. And in the contract, it says that we're going to comply with local ordinances. So that's how we figured out, okay, let's just comply with City of L.A. code, and we'll be okay. But everything you go build there is a challenge. I mean, everything. And the, the campus is completely full of buildings already. When you said everything's built to a specific need, I thought, I bet they've 
At one time, they might have had a master plan. There's been a series of master plans. Actually, part of my job there was to get the master plan approved through NASA. We had a, a, a more recent master plan that was supposed to be approved by NASA in Washington. So I was briefing some of the Washington people in charge of construction of facilities. This is our new master plan. This is what we're going to be doing. This is what we're not going to be doing. So there's a master plan that also complies with some of the federal regulations that say before you build a new structure, you got to demo three times that square footage because they have too many installations. The government owns too many buildings, right? So there was this, what is it, like an executive order that said, mm -hmm. before you build, you got to go demo three times the, the square, square footage. footage. Well, that's where, that was great at Johnson Space Center or, or at Kennedy Space Center, where they have thousands of acres, where they have hundreds of structures that are mothballed, and they can go, oh, we'll just go demo that hangar. Nobody uses it. And then that's the square footage for us to build JPL's JPL is packed. packed. There, there's people on top of people on top of people at JPL. And there's no empty chair. We can't say, okay, all these people are going here while we go build it. And what are we going to demo? We don't have three three times the square footage to go out. I mean, we'll have to kick people out to go build something new. So it has its very unique challenges. It's, it's very interesting. Do they have a lot of underground stuff then at JPL? <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of there's underground. There's a lot of underground, uh, isn't ton. there? There's, there's a ton of underground utilities that have been buried there since the 1940s. There's contaminated soil. There's, you know, because they used to test rockets. So, you know, there's areas that have large contamination. They have somebody on site that manages all that. There's. Well, I was thinking, like, when they did the Griffith Griffith Observatory, mm -hmm. when they added on to that, they went underneath. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's that's the only way to do it. But you're also adding square footage. So So they still want you to demo. Yeah. You go demo one of the things. Go, go demo something. So it's one of those Let's orders, up one like, of those buildings. It's, uh, it's a catch-22, you know. You're like, okay, well, can I demo some trailers? Does that count? And like, well, yeah, maybe. There's some underground structures that have been there for a long time. But generally, there's there's not a lot of... The master plan doesn't say start building deep. People have talked about putting putting parking structures underground because there's a lot of surface area that's taken up by parking mm -hmm. structures. There's six thousand people that, that work at the at the lab every day. You got to park all these people, right? So, well, there was some thought to okay, go build a underground parking structure. The problem there is the funding, because NASA is the smallest federal agency. Really? It is. The smallest the federal smallest agency. The smallest federal Its budget is only like $19 billion or $20, 21000000000 billion. That's it. I mean, this isn't the NASA of the 1960s, uh -huh. right? They don't even fly a space shuttle right now. Anymore, yeah. So the budget is being competed by eight different NASA centers. We're competing with Marshall, with Johnson, with Kennedy, with Armstrong, with Ames. with All the NASA centers have needs. So they and nothing you build is cheap. <laughs> Absolutely not. Nothing you build well, is cheap. And the building's just a part of that $21 billion, right? Yeah. But but it's a... So if you do anything over $10 million in NASA, that they, they call it discrete building. You know, discrete construction of this building. And it's a construction of facilities building. And it's literally a line item in a budget bill. It literally requires... Congressional, congressional approval. approval. Yeah, it's an act of Congress to, to go get to get it. Yeah, to get anything done. It's that is true at NASA. Regardless of that, they managed to build 
with a budget that's separate from construction of facilities, they managed to, to fill all the needs for the lab with, with a smaller budget that's not part of the construction of facilities, discrete line items. And they, they managed to build a bunch of stuff for the lab. The, the lab needs to integrate new missions and build new robots to go send to the far reaches of the solar system. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as we talk about, you know, you're faced with these challenges that are different than anything you could imagine yeah. until you're in it. Yeah. I guess there's two ways of thinking. You can either say, hey, we're going to figure this out, and then you become an expert in, in dealing with those things. Mm -hmm. Or you sit there and throw your hands up in the air and say, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. And but, so maybe as some advice to some of these kids, yeah, it's like, when you're faced with a problem and you there's not a solution or you can't find the solution, then it it's your job to go to try to figure it out. Yeah, I think I think one of your first jobs is to understand the problem. I, I, I saw that a lot and and everywhere I've been, I've I've seen people that that come with a problem that don't really understand the problem. And many times, understanding the problem will point you the solution. They observe symptoms. As yes, problems. yes, they observe symptoms as problems instead of really figuring out what the root cause of these is. If you're curing the symptoms, you're not curing the problem. You're not curing the problem. And this is something that I think is, is learned the hard way for many people is, you know, they keep beating their, their head against the wall and, and they don't find out the root cause of issues. I was reading a book one time. I, I'll try to remember the, the, the name of the book, that, but it said, when you have a problem, uh, the first question you should ask is why. Why is this happening? Let's say, for example, let's talk about the my favorite intumescent paint issue at the ambassador. So we had a problem with with the intumescent paint drooping, right? Yeah, this it was, was blistering. It was, it was blistering. So the first question is why? Why is it blistering? So what's the answer to that? So to determine that answer, we had to really examine the coating itself mm -hmm. and the process. We we examined the evidence that we had with the finished product, right? And Part of that was we were looking for something that would cause a blister, which quite often, if you have solvent that can't get out of the coating system, mm -hmm. eventually it'll force a blister. Right, because it starts evaporating as the VOC system. Yeah, and it just, it, the, it's, it expands, yep. you, you know, it heats it up during the day, it expands, creates a bubble, and so you, you look for that, and then, so, so, so you why, do, why do we have that? So, you, you okay, you, you answer the first question, why? Yeah. Why is it failing? Because it's blistering. Why is it blistering? Yeah, yeah blistering's a symptom. Yeah. Yeah. It's blistering because the VOCs are expanding. Well, why are the VOCs expanding? That's your third why. Yeah. So in, then you go to look at the process during the application. Right. And is the process sound or is it not sound? Are we following the guidelines or are we not? Are we following the guidelines? So you ask why again. So, okay, let's say that we follow the guidelines. So why is it blistering? So so why is why are the VOCs pooling? Why is the product doing this? So it's not until you, you ask why for the fifth time, in many circumstances, you get to the root cause of the issue. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out the product was defective. Now, we could go another five whys into why the product is defective, but that's the manufacturer's job, right? Right. You figured out the product was defective, and then, okay, we need to replace the product. What we actually figured out in that case was that their application recommendations were defective. Oh, yeah. Because they said, oh, you can put the next coat on within this time period, within these temperatures. And it turned out that the product had, hadn't actually reached a hardness level, which was a measure of how much solvent had evaporated and, and how 
structurally sound that coat was. So you were because tra- it took multiple yeah. coats to to get that final thickness. So you were trapping solvents in there. So we were trapping solvents. Yeah, it took like fifty coats. It was ridiculous. Oh yeah. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> Welcome really, to domestic coats. I know it was like applying peanut butter to, to yeah. The it was that's that's what it looked like to me. So no, that's an example of asking why is not just once. It's, it's why did this happen? It's trying to get to the root cause. Try to understand why why really this problem is happening, and be open minded enough to understand that you may be involved in the cause of this problem. A lot of people, when they're asking why, they they shy away from pointing the finger at themselves. But if you're being honest with yourself, sometimes you'll find you're part of it. So understanding it is is, in my opinion, the first step, and then that'll point you to what you need to change, to to get to a solution. You know, if, if Cliff had said, well, this this isn't working, without really understanding that the application instructions were incorrect, he would have never figured it out. And he he may have gone to the next job and did exactly the same thing. Or I may have, like, said, oh, well, this is my problem, mm. right? Yeah. And, and took a huge take, hit. Taking a huge hit, bearing the financial burden of having to remove all that coating and replace it. Fifty dollars a square foot. Yeah. <laughs> it ain't cheap. I know, and it's a life safety issue, so it's like I know you you can't okay. skip on it. The mills have to be precise, and it's yeah. it's yeah. But that's that's a point that that be honest with yourself. Ask ask the questions until you get to the to to the root cause of the problems. Understand the problem before you say there's a problem. If you go, if, if let's say you're starting in the business and you, and you go to your boss and, the, and you say, there's a problem, they're going to go, well, why? What's the problem? If you don't understand why, that's not good enough. you got to find out what, what are you going to do to fix that problem. It's not good enough to just say there's a problem. What are we going to do about it? Yeah, that's classic Cliff. Whenever you go to Cliff with something, it's like, well, what about this? Well, I don't know. I'm just pointing out the fact that there's an issue. Well, I don't want to deal with it. You need to do it. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, yeah. you know, it's easy to try to pawn it off onto somebody else. And so it makes you sit back and think, okay, like, if I'm going to go to the owner about this, I want to make sure my, my ducks are in a row. Yeah, and, and you know, when you're young in the in the construction, and in, in any business, you're not going to have the experience Cliff has of, of understanding how, what the root cause of, is of all the problems. But at least put the effort into understanding it. You know, understand more of, of the issues before you raise them as, as before you elevate them. Understand them as best you can. I think that's good advice for any business, right. uh, particularly to, uh, for construction. You know, where we're talking about problem solving and thinking about, you do the same thing actually in design. Mm-hmm. You can have something and you look at it and you've got a whole rationale for why you're doing something. And you look at it and go, that just doesn't look right. I know. It just, know. you know, there's something wrong with this. And you got to <laughs> and you have to like take a step back and look at it and go, "What why doesn't this look right?" Right. Right. Mm-hmm. That I think you acquire that with experience. After you you've seen enough things being built a certain way and you see something completely different, you go, "Wait a minute. What this is, is why is this different? You know, is there a reason for it to be different or did they just assign this to a junior or guy that you know, just didn't really know that the didn't know. industry standard is something else. And, and that's part of the knowledge that needs to be passed down to generations. You know, there's there's so much knowledge out there that I believe we need to do a better job passing down. Well, one thing I will say, and Cliff makes a point of this a lot, is the more that you actually know, you know, anyone can Google an answer to something. 
But as you take in some of this information and you learn it, you know, when a problem arises, if you can just recall that information, it's way better than having, okay, let me go see if I can find the answer and how do I even Google that or who do I call? You know, so, so make it a point to learn the things that you're, that you're doing. I would say it's true, absolutely true. The only things you recall are the ones that scarred you. <laughs> those are the ones that are fresh in your mind. You, you, you remember those very well. They're fresh always. Well, yeah, uh, those they're, are, they're fresh. Yeah, they, those never go away. The genesis of that was the things you see about millennials, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and the guy's interviewing the girl. She says, oh, I'm, I'm you know, very tech savvy. And, well, really, what software do you know? And she goes, well, I know Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> and he goes, oh, I'm surprised you didn't say something. And she goes, like, oh, it's like, you know, rolls her eyes. But, of course, she didn't know Excel or Office or anything that you needed in business. <laughs> this is her old school And class. he says, well, you know, when you work for me and I come and I ask you a question, you're going to have to give me an answer. And she goes, oh, well, I'll just ask Siri. <laughs> and, and then we've had some interactions with a millennial yeah. in here. And it's just like, it dawned on me. They think, well, I don't really need to know stuff. I'll just keep asking this question or I can go to this source. And I've said, I'm good at what I do because I have a lot of knowledge. Yeah. And while they're trying to, while they're asking Siri, I've already like working on why did this happen? You know, what are my options? You know, in fairness to millennials, when you were their age, you thought you were the, the hot shot and you knew it all. And I did too. You know, I didn't have Siri. Otherwise, yeah, I would have. Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. That's what that was all we had, yeah. and you had to go to the library, you know, to look things up. But I thought it was a hot shot. I I thought I, you know, I'm God's gift to construction <laughs> I, in my twenties, and you know, I think every generation goes through that. They look at the generation behind them. Yeah. And think, oh, we, you know, like I was never that way. Yeah, but 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 now you're at the point that you're you're no longer the young hot shot in 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 your generation. Neither am I, you know, and, and I think every generation goes through this cycle. We're just now we're called millennials, but we were we were the millennials, you know, yeah. of our day. So, well, yeah, we did. We had a poor work ethic. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Shoved late and hung over. <laughs> no, and, and I would say, you know, it's hard. It's it's you always have to remember that, you know, it past repeats itself and. And it's easy it to think that you were never in that position. You know, when I was when I was just starting in construction, I remember the old the older guys. They said, "Well, you know, the younger kids that are coming to the business have no work ethic. They don't want to learn anything. They think they're entitled to everything." You go ask somebody right now; they have the same issues. Mentality. Go ask a a craftsman that that's been doing this work for thirty years, and he'll tell you the exact same thing. Uh, the same thing about somebody that's in the in the apprenticeship program. Apprenticeship program. And it's just, it, it'll never change. It'll always be like that. You wanted to go do something different. Mm -hmm. You went to NASA. How long did that last? I was there for a year. Okay, so just long enough to realize maybe not that different. Huh? No, it, it was, no, let me tell you, it was completely different. And, and I was enjoying the hell out of going there. Really, every day I drove in the lab, I'm like, why are they letting me in here? <laughs> I know, I, I really, I had my federal ID badge, and I'm like, really? It's, it's me. Can I come in today? It's not a joke. No, I'm like, are, are you letting me in? <laughs> no, it was really fun. The people that I work with were, were fantastic. Um, about a year into it, um, a friend of mine ap approached me because they were starting to do the, the construction of, of uh, the Delta program in 
terminals two and three. So if you remember Delta was terminal five, then they flipped over to terminals two and three. Last year during the big shakeup. It was a gigantic move. Yep. It was it was an incredible overnight. Overnight. These people are gonna move to this terminal and these guys are gonna move to that terminal and Yeah, that overnight ballet took over a year to orchestrate for that to go as flawlessly as it did. And it was Clark McCarthy Joint Venture, CMJV, that, that did most of that work uh, for the move, the enabling work for the 2017 move, they call it. And my hat's off to those guys because they really busted their ass, you know, day and night and day and night making it happen. It was incredible. They put $280 million of work in place in one year at the airport. That's Herculean effort. effort. Yeah. For sure. Anyway, back to the story. This friend of mine that was that was in charge of the Delta program calls and he's like, "Hey, you probably should come chat. You want to be part of this." At the same time, another mutual friend called my friend Steve Kimball, who was at the airport doing other stuff. And I've known Steve since the Victorville days. And him and I talked. We're like, "Does this sound like something good? Does this sound like like something that should be fun to do?" So we talked about it, and we, you know, I, I was happy at NASA. I was having fun. You know, I was dealing with things that were completely out of my realm, which I was enjoying. And I thought, yes, it is the airport. Do I really want to go back for more back punishment? to the airport. Yeah, I want to go back to LAX. But at the end of the day, I thought to myself, I would regret passing up this opportunity. I didn't want to be three or four years down the line going, well, what could have happened if I, if I did that, you know? I, I think that's guided some of my decisions throughout my life is, if am I going to regret not doing it or am I going to regret doing it? And I don't think you frequently regret doing things. I think you regret not doing things a lot more. That's part of the reason that I moved to the States. I was, I was, I was happy in Cabo. I mean... You're working right on the beach. I was working on the beach. I was single-ish. I had money. I had. I was making more money than I could spend, and I'm like, well, you know, in Cabo, in Cabo, people go on vacation there. Yeah, you know, I live there. And, and you were building fancy houses, I right? I was building fancy houses, doing all kinds of cool courses. things in yeah. those houses. Yeah, yeah, amazing things. But I thought, if I don't move to LA, if I don't take this opportunity, will I regret it? And the answer was yes. You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? That it doesn't work out, and I have to go back to Cabo. Okay. What's you know? What's the big <laughs> dang deal? It. Yeah, dang it! What's the worst thing about going to Delta? Am I, I regret it, and, and I'll go back to JPL. Oh well, you know it's. I think a lot of people get a little bit single tracked in their careers, and I certainly did for a long time. HP is an amazing company, great group of people. I'll never ever say anything bad about HP, but I want to do something different. So if you want to do something different, go look for it. Go do it. You're not going to lose your skills. You're not all of a sudden going to be destitute on the side of the road you're going to take all those skills with you and you can go do any number of things that are related in the industry well and if you plan that you're not you know you don't you're not going to burn any bridges no no not at all so the the opportunity to go back would be there yeah you know if you potentially so it, it it's just a matter of of how you deal with people, obviously, right? Everything we do, everything we, we all do is, is a social thing. When we build buildings, it's a social endeavor. We, we do it through people. If you don't spend the time building their relationships with people, the results are not going to be good. If you don't spend the time building up your team, the results are not going to be good. Build your team. Build your relationships. Understand the motivations of other team members and other other third parties. But spend some time examining that and, and then go build the building. It's definitely a social thing. 
understanding people in construction is, is, is an essential skill, in my opinion. A soft skill that doesn't get a lot of talk. I, I don't think it gets, it gets taught in school, at least not in civil engineering. They didn't what? teach me. <laughs> <laughs> I wish they would have, uh, because I think the people that really understand and know how to read other people are more successful in construction. Obviously, not can't use that negatively. You have to have integrity in the business, you know. But it's a soft skill that de you definitely need to learn is how to deal with people. Because it doesn't matter what message you have, if you deliver it the wrong way, if you come across too aggressively, the message is not gonna be heard. Right. Nobody cares about that message when you deliver it incorrectly. But if you deliver it correctly, people will listen. And it doesn't matter what, what the message is. It's, it's definitely something that if you're starting in construction, you should pay attention to. Observe other people. Keep your mouth shut longer, you know? Listen, listen more closely. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> There's so, somebody told me once, there's a reason God gave you two ears and one mouth. <laughs> Use them twice yeah. as much. Yep. Use them twice as much. I would agree with that. Now looking at the position that you're in, mm -hmm. you know, what are you doing on a daily? Now you're working for, is it Sutterfield and Pontiques? Yeah. So it's a joint venture between Sutterfield and Pontiques and STV. The joint venture was formed with two executives from those companies to go do projects for Delta Airlines around the country. Talking about relationships. Yeah, talk about relationships. It's these people have known each other for twenty years and can rely on each other. They 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 have learned to trust each other. So guess what? There's opportunities there, right? When there's when there's the relationships, then you'll find the opportunities there. So yeah, it's a joint venture between those companies. I'm the deputy director in charge of construction operations. So I'm in charge of the construction of this one point five billion dollar thing at LAX over the next five years, which is humbling. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be quite the challenge. It's a gargantuan project. What's involved in the project besides a lot of money? <laughs> <laughs> well, part of the reason it's a lot of money is because it's a LAX, as you know. But we're going to completely tear down Terminal 3 and rebuild it from the ground. Then the building that connects Terminal 2 and 3 gets demolished and rebuilt. Terminal 2 gets a remodel, like a once-over. Then there's also going to be... Again? Yeah, again. We just did it. Well, we did... We Cliff. did the concourse. I right? guess they didn't like it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, well, you remember that, that T2 was the international terminal on the north side, right? There was all these carriers from Ireland to, I think mm -hmm. even Hawaiian Airlines was out there for some yeah. reason. Now it's all Delta. So everything that the airport did for the international terminals now really doesn't necessarily work with Delta's vision. So Delta's going to go, it's not going to be a heavy remodel. It's, it's really going to be a, you know, changing whole Facelift. room settings. We're going to change the where the checkpoint is in T2. There's going to be some structural changes, but uh, it's not, I mean, it's not a super heavy remodel. Of You're not two. dropping it to the ground. You no, know, no, like T2, yeah, not like Terminal 3 for sure. T2 That's stays. amazing. They're going to drop that terminal. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to start over from scratch. We're going to go dig to the dirt, start with new foundations, and build a new head house that we call, which is the building that connects the terminals 2 and 3. That's going to have its own checkpoint in the middle that's going to distribute people to terminals 2 and 3, then the connector between T3 and Tibet. Yeah. How are they going to manage? To do, where are they going to get the gates that they're losing? They're not losing gates. This is part of the amazing thing and the things that, that really is exciting to learn, right? So there's there's this sequencing plan that we're working with Arup, the engineers. Amazing group of people. Arup are great at what they do. Their avi aviation experts are top-notch. And jointly with Arup, we've sort of figured out how to add gates initially. Right now, we're adding some gates 
so that when we have to take down gates, they don't lose as many. The idea is to keep a certain number of gates active throughout the project, throughout construction, which is a lot more gates than they used to have at T5, by the way. So they've expanded their operations in, at LAX. And, and our job is to figure out how to build all this, taking down only the gates we need while we're doing it. But for that, we're going to build a bunch of new gates. There's going to be some crowded hold rooms, perhaps. It's, it's not going to be as pretty. The experience is going to suffer a mm -hmm. little bit. But the end result yeah, will make it better for everybody. We hope. That's the and goal, right? Yeah, that's the goal. And the fact that you have to go build a project while an airline is operating in that space it's pretty complex, which is part of the part of the excitement and part of the challenge for us, right? And it's part of the things that I go home and I'm scratching my head, going, "How are we actually going to do this?" <laughs> like, no, that, that's 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 the thing that I, I was talking about learning things. This is this is a challenge. This is, I'm learning a bunch of new things, and it's 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 what makes me wake up in the morning and be excited about going to work. You know? Do the different airlines have different handling equipment? What kind of handling? Like, like baggage handling? Yeah. So there's 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 a few different manufacturers of baggage handling equipment. Yeah, the different airlines have different systems that different manufacturers put in the airport for them. So it's not universal across the board when you take over a terminal. So when Delta moved over, was it from five? Five, yeah. To two and three? Mm -hmm. Did they use the, the existing equipment that was there, or did they have to put the, in their equipment that they were... So they, they added equipment to, to add capacity. So they put a, a little bit of new baggage handling equipment, and they, they're using what was there before as well. So they had to integrate those two kinds yep. of equipment. Yeah. So it Which sounds like, oh, well. I, it sounds like it's not a big bags, deal, right? Right, but, <laughs> right, but just, to, just to make sure that an airline operates a bunch of existing equipment in their systems, all the work that has to happen in the background for that to work day one is enormous. All the all the behind the scenes planning, work, all the planning, all the integration of their network to the new the new systems and all this and all the testing has to happen for people to go up to the counter and present their passport and somebody types in, oh yeah, your flight is on gate X Y Z. Just for that to happen, for Delta to have its own system, they're operating they want. It's amazing what yeah. needs to happen. All, all that behind-the-scenes work at an airport is, is, is really fascinating. Everything that happens in the baggage system, right? Like when you're back, you see the belt where they put your bag and then it goes back. Well, it goes through a series of machines that, to, that they sniff to see if there's bombs and whatnot, which if you ever want to do an experiment, put a jar of peanut butter in your, in your luggage, and you'll find one of those TSA tags that says, we've checked your luggage. Because peanut butter has a certain density oh. that gets flagged like this by those machines. And immediately they put it in the room where somebody physically examines your bag. You don't get to see any of that. Yeah. You, you, just, you just walk into your gate at that point while your bag is being examined. You're complaining about the sticker on your You're like, luggage who you got back. in my <laughs> luggage? Well, <laughs> you have peanut butter. Of course somebody got in. Yeah. So all that's really interesting, all, all that behind-the-scenes stuff that happens. And, and, and that's just one aspect, all the aspects of how the airline actually operates, you know, how, how, how they push airplanes in and out and how they get in the gates and who goes in and cleans them and who services them, get, you know, gets some fuel, food, turnaround time. So it's, it's incredible. You don't that's think really, about it. You don't think about it, and that's good. Yeah. Because if you think about it, it means something's going wrong. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, when you're sitting on an airplane, there's no gate for you. Something's wrong. Right. 
you know your day-to-day operations i mean what are you what are you doing right now my, my job really is to make sure that we're thinking about the right things at the right time it's 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 a little bit of strategy strategy and a, and a little bit tactical because it's not good enough to just to think that we're do, you know thinking about the right things right now i have to make sure that we have all the resources in place whether it's personnel resources, whether it's physical resources, whether it's space, whether it's whatever, all the resources that the project managers need to implement the strategy that we've laid out. That's my job. But I have to understand the tactical issues too. I have to understand the details. I don't understand all the details, but I have to understand enough about them to know whether or not things are going the way they're supposed to be done. So that's my day-to-day job is to make sure that we're planning far enough ahead. We're looking far enough down the road to avoid obstacles if we see them, but that the the day to day things are happening the way they're supposed to be happening. And and you know, thinking of do we have the right people in the in the right job? Do we need more of this, less of that resource? That's sort of what I do on a day to day basis. What's the most important thing to make that happen? To make which part happen? Well, you've got that's all, a very broad. You've got question. all these moving parts going on. Right? Yeah. How do you get that done? I think that you cannot divorce yourself from the details. I'll tell you what I think is the most important part is your attention. Whatever you give your attention to tends to happen. And obviously that means a lot of things, right? But if you follow up on things, things tend to happen better. If you don't follow up on things, things don't happen at all. So it can vary from day to day. I mean, what, what's important today may be totally different than what's going to be important tomorrow. So I have to give my attention to s- different things at different times. And I think this is a good lesson for people starting in the industry, too. There's no, there's no like, magic secrets in construction. Like, nothing that PCL does is so different than, no. than what Pencil Phelps. No. no, nothing. There's, I mean, their RFI forms look exactly the same. It, it's not like they have the magical submittals, right? It's, it's, <laughs> there's nothing magical except... If you follow up, to give you an example, if let's say we buy windows from a from a supplier or subcontractor, and the submittals are due a month from today, you say, okay, I'll check in with them the week before they're due. So you call them the week before the the submittals are due, and they go, oh, yeah, you're the job in L.A. <laughs> right? Okay, yeah, let me see what I can do for you. You know, I'll see if I can throw them together for you. Had you checked in the day after you awarded the contract and said, hey, I just want to let you know I'm here if you have any questions. This is my cell phone number. Call me anytime. I need to get these submittals in by this date. So if you run into any issues, any questions, call me before you sit down to write our advice because I may have the answers for you. Or I'll find them quicker than, than, than whatever. So, yeah. So you check in the day after. You check in the week after. Hey, how are those submittals coming along? Uh, well, okay, maybe they haven't touched them, but... No. You're the this squeaky. Guy's gonna yeah, yeah, now you're the squeaky <laughs> wheel, right? Yeah. So this guy's gonna go bug me the whole time. Yep. So you call him the week after. I guarantee you they're working on him. And a week before they're due, they may even have him ready for you. But it, you gave it enough attention and followed up enough that it got done. And that happens over and over and over and over again. And again, there's no secret. It's just have you followed up on your construction drawings for your house? Yeah. <laughs> you know. So, see the answer I was looking for how do you communicate all that stuff mm. but in fact that's what you were talking about doing yeah is that communication you got to make all these things happen and if the communication is not flowing it doesn't happen. it doesn't happen no i'm a big fan of in-person communication now it's not efficient 
I communicate in person with most people at my office, but if I have to talk to you, Cliff, it's not very efficient for me to drive to Anaheim <laughs> yeah. or for you uh, for me to call you and say, hey, come to LAX tomorrow. I need to talk to you. You know, then we pick up the phone and we talk to each other, right? I don't like email that much because, you know, the, the response is not there. The inflection is not there. I don't know if Cliff is mad at me when he sends me an email. He sounds mad, but he, he you know, maybe, maybe he's just, not. Maybe he's not. But if I'm talking to you on the phone, I'll know. And if I'm in person, I'll definitely know what's happening. So a lot of it gets lost in translation when you do emails or text messages or... You know, email is so prevalent now. <sighs> and I know. It's a bane of my existence. And you can't cover all the details. It takes forever to get to all those details. And so <laughs> you pick up the phone and you can cover what would take three pages yeah. can happen in five minutes. Five minutes. Yeah, absolutely. But in person, it's even quicker. Because you're not having to go, okay, flip to this page. Let's talk about this detail or whatever. It's like you're together. You're figuring it out. Ideas flow a lot better in person, you know, and, and between people. And that's that's one of the things that makes construction so social is the interactions between people need to happen. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. Things don't happen if they don't have your attention. So that means I have to go to PCL tomorrow and straighten them out about that door? Probably, yeah. Or the doors. Talking about. We, we what happened, a, Cliff? We have these doors mm -hmm. that they're going to get a full finish okay and i'm convinced that the designers have not communicated what they want mm -hmm. and i got all these people going oh this is what they want no this is what they want no this is what they want i'm like going go back to the designer and tell him to illustrate what he wants because yeah. you can't describe this yeah. you know you think but the project engineers like oh i i know exactly what they want you have you don't know what they want <laughs> no i and that's a that's a good point i think your presence would resolve the issue you being physically there and saying can somebody point at exactly what i'm supposed to be doing here rather than trying to explain it to me on the phone and does the designer is the designer sitting across the table and nodding their head yeah that's exactly what we want well, that'll solve the issue right well and in this instance we've talked about this you know there's one person likely that knows exactly what they want yeah and we're running around trying to find that person. Oh. And nobody really has a clear picture. And the last thing you want to do is to perform all of this work and get all of this done and then and have the wrong. one guy come in and say, No. That's not what I that's not what I wanted. Well yeah. that's what he thought you wanted and what he thought you wanted and what he thought you wanted and what they relayed to me. But we could have killed this really early on if you just told us what you wanted. Absolutely. Absolutely. If 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 the communication had been clear to begin with, you wouldn't be stuck in this predicament, right? right? So yeah, no, you're right. The communication is communication is a skill that needs to be honed by everybody, especially in construction, because everything is custom made in construction, right? There's like no two things that are exactly the same. So, how are you going to communicate all the aspects of a building to all the people that need to participate in it? You know, there needs to be a ton of communication. And I I tell people it's like architects, you know, it's like oh the. There are good drawings and there are bad drawings. Mm -hmm. But you can have the best drawings, and there's a lot of information that's not there. It'll never be there. It'll, It'll never I mean, be there because there's so many pieces. Just by design. And in the, the construction industry will never, there's always going to be human beings building yeah, things. Absolutely. Because there's so many variables that occur on a job site. Yeah. And I know that's getting, like BIM helps minimize some of those things, right? To a, to a certain degree, it does, but you'll never eliminate the variables that happen in the field. Yeah, field conditions. Field conditions. Unforeseen stuff. 
Yeah, there are simply, I mean, tolerance issues. You know, things get put together by humans. They they need to have tolerances that, that align with the human nature of construction. You know, I, I'm reminded of a project that we did in which the it was a set of stairs that I think it was seven inches exactly for each riser and 11 inches for each tread. This had zero flexibility for screw-ups between one level and the other. If you add a step to the stairs, then all of a sudden you have all this flexibility. But no, we have we were rigidly at seven inches, and you can't vary from that. And it really required that our craftsmen had zero tolerances. On oh. the, on this. So yeah. it's hard. It's impossible to do. The, the, these poor guys did the treads in the stair like six times. Because every time they were an eighth of an inch off or whatever, it's like, oh, my God. We could have designed this differently. I told you about that TI in New York. Mm. Well, he was the guy I worked for it designed these door frames, and they were going to be eight inch pieces of brass, right? <laughs> and that was going to be the frame. And there was this, so, okay, how are we going to do this? And finally, the general said, okay, what are my tolerances? The hardware guy who had a degree in architecture was like, GC says, thickness of a string. Can I be off that much? And he goes, yeah, okay. The thickness of a string. The thickness of a string. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and they had they had some cabinets that they had acquired someplace, right. and when they laid them out, they laid them out so tight, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was just like one of the people got. It was like, oh my god, this is like th- this is supposed to be a quarter of an inch. It's like. <laughs> It's three eighths. Yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. People forget about tolerances. I mean, you have to be able to incorporate this in, in the building, and that causes different issues. So, none of our jobs, and especially craftsman jobs, are ever going to be replaced by robots or by a three D printing machine that prints concrete or something. <laughs> certain things can be automated. Yeah. Certain things should. Tools be are going to get better. Tools. tools are constantly going to get better. Yes, I agree. Tools should get better, especially electronic tools to, you know, some of the BIM stuff that we're talking about. Those, those, I've seen a progression in that that's amazing, and I guess I'm easily impressed. But this, I'm like, wow, we can do that now? We can. <laughs> like back then, you heard the term BIM, you know, the building information modeling. And you're like, okay, cool, it's a 3D model. What else can it do? Well, it can do a lot of things, depending on how the architect or the designer puts information into the the pieces of the model how many levels they use yeah yeah yeah, exactly so all of a sudden oh i can count all my door frames you know like the the model can give me that information i know how many tons of steel should be in this building how many screws how many screws it's gonna you know how many screws on window frames have you guys needed to paint you know and everyone forgets that you know it's like oh my god the screws on the window frames but yeah depending on the level of detail that you put into the model is it's useful or not you can isolate things in the model and see everything that's going to happen in the next three weeks well you you tell the model this is the schedule these are the pieces of the model that belong in this part of the schedule these are the pieces of the model that belong to this part of the schedule you can do a visualization of everything that needs to, that we need to do in the next two months you're going to start here, you're going to finish here. You can do the same for production. Are we on track with our production, with the model? It's pretty cool. What's out there today, it's it's a lot better than the... I guess when, when I when I started seeing this, it, it was, you know, coordination, clash detection, and stuff like that. Now it's getting to be sophisticated enough that it's you are able to do things like augmented reality with the model. You know, you put those goggles on, you stand where you're standing, and you're, you're, you're in the room. Right. That's going to be there in the future. Well, and I want to look at 
the framing details. Yeah. And so all of a sudden it projects the framing details. Yeah, and the, dry, the drywall goes to it. Yep. You know? It's pretty amazing. And as I turn my head to the right, I can see where they run and how they, you know, how everything ties together. Isn't that cool? Well, it's been an interesting conversation as we've talked because you've you've covered a lot of things like the soft skills, (laughs) you know, all this importance of communication, and there's this, there is this need for that, and it doesn't get taught in school a lot of times, Mm -hmm. and I believe that that's important, you know, really to be able to pick up a phone and have a difficult phone call because we're all going to be there at some point or multiple points in our career, you know, you have to be able to do that, and. It can't be done in email. For sure, yeah. <laughs> At least not that's going to resolve anything quickly. No. You know, as we talk a little bit about technology, is there anything you've seen that kind of blows your mind? A couple things that come to mind recently. We're using a, a software called Assemble, and it assembles information from the model. And it does pretty cool things like we were talking about, you know, visualizing the schedule and visualizing certain parts of, of the program, the project, you know, isolating certain things. But it does help with estimating as well you know you can estimate you know how many square foot of facade of this type do i have how many square feet of mechanical screens or whatever you know so extracting the information from the model that way i think it's pretty cool another thing i've seen that that's awesome is the augmented reality portion of it you know it's like what is it called the oculus or something right yeah well there's oculus the rift. hololens which is my the hololens yeah oculus is the oculus rift, yeah, rift. multiple yeah. different variations so i i've i've worn a few of those and i'm like whoa this is pretty cool you know and, and again it's i think it's in its infancy it hasn't been adopted it hasn't been adopted throughout the construction yeah. world but it, and it's i think it's at a level that people start to recognize that it could be useful right now it's cool well, how can we make it from cool to useful, right, well, in and construction? It's, it's getting to the point where people are realizing maybe this isn't going to go away. Yeah. You know, it didn't fizzle out. It, right, right. This is really something they're going to pursue. Bruno, when you said that Assemble will help you visualize the schedule, yeah. does that mean it builds a 3D model? No, no. So so you use a 3D model that the designer built. Mm-hmm. But you assign part of the properties you assign to the build to the model elements have to do with schedule. So you can isolate certain elements that happen the next month because you gave them that property. You know, you can add properties to the model, right. to the different pieces of the model. So I can add a property called schedule. It happens on this date. I know that the slab is going to go first. Right. It's so going to get assigned to that portion. So you can, you can say, show me everything that happens on May 13th. And if something in the model has been assigned May 13th, they, it'll show it to you. You're finishing this portion yeah. of this and starting this portion of that. Yeah, there's oh. a, and and the other cool thing they're doing that we're doing with assembly. So it takes this huge database yeah. and allows you to isolate things within that database. Correct, with the properties you assign to it or the designers assigned to it. The other thing that we're doing is as design is progressing, we compare one model to the other to see how it's changed. You know, from the last model that the architect uploaded to this model, well, now there's a ton more columns, or now there's a ton more square footage of terrazzo, mm-hmm. or now all of a sudden, you know... This open space is now divided this, into rooms. Yeah, exactly. Now now we have more walls, and, and we have to go paint those walls, and we have to put lighting in those rooms. And The comparison between one model and the other is, is made pretty, pretty easily, and you can imagine that once the the design is complete if there's a change in design and the model gets uploaded you'll see it pretty quickly hey the design changed here what happened it's the new Why overlay is it 
Right. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, well, it's it's a bulletin. We'll be able to figure out square footages, quantities from the changes in the model, you know, and pretty easily figure out whether or not this is it's a changer that we need to push out or maybe it's an error that we need to correct. Will that filter down to subcontractors? Yeah. So they have access to that information? I think they will, they will be able to have access to, to some of that information at least because you won't care about terrazzo. Right. But the terrazzo guy may care about some you know, carpet or you know other things. You'll definitely care about steel if you're priming it. It should flow down to the subcontractor level to at least communicate with them what we're seeing in terms of production, in terms of schedule, in terms of... In this area of the building, we're seeing a change that's added this much. Absolutely. I mean, why fight about it? This is what the change has shown. Let's all agree that these are the quantities. Now we can just argue about cost, about the, the, the unit prices for that, right? If, if we've established that from the get-go, where's the argument? Yeah, that kind of shared information would be great. That's where we want to get it to. Are you trying to use that on the Delta project? Yeah, we're using it on the Delta project. Another thing that we're doing is, from the get-go, we're establishing unit prices with all our subcontractors, labor rates, unit price rates, so that let's argue about quantities. Let's not argue about how the, how much the quantities are worth. Let's all agree that the quantities are worth this much. You pay this much for labor. You pay this much for material. You're entitled to a profit of this much. Let's all agree to that right now. And then we can argue about quantities. But if we have that ability to isolate those quantities from a change, then we'll agree. And I will have nothing to yell at you about, Cliff. Well, and I would think if you have a model and it has properties assigned to it, that information shared right up in front mm-hmm. is like, okay, because our estimating is, it's estimating. It's not exacting? No. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we have someone who's training, and she put down, you know, this you know, 997 feet, square feet. I'm like, no. It's just yeah. like, don't. Can you round up? <laughs> yeah, just round up. You know, I said, it's not that precise. You don't want to give someone the impression of precision. I, I, I will say, I would be cautious of relying on a model for your estimate quantities. Because all it would take is for the designer to have forgotten to, to, to assign, to a, assign property. a property to an element that's 300 feet long yeah. for the estimate to be incorrect. It doesn't show up on the takeoff tab. Or no. So I think it's a good backup for your estimate, mm-hmm. and it's a good back check against what you do, but it'll never substitute an estimator's role. It'll augment it and make it better. It'll make his life simpler. If he does his first run, he estimated or she estimated 997 square feet, and the model says, says there's 1,030 you're pretty close. Yeah. You yeah. know, go home early. Your work here's done. <laughs> but if for whatever reason the model says there's 3,000, yeah. we're, let's, let's look we're into vastly this. apart. Yes. Let's look into it. So I think it's going to be useful from that regard, but I would never rely exclusively on a model because, again, humans build models. And it's so, all about assigning those properties. Right. There's always going to be human error in everything we do. If there wasn't errors, we wouldn't have jobs. If there weren't heirs, we'd never get any work. I know. Yeah. (laughs) Partially true. (laughs) Well, as we kind of wrap it up, Bruno, any advice to kids that are in school? I mean, we've talked, you've given a lot of really good advice. And it's not been, it's not been the typical do this, do that. It's, it's, you know, there's a lot of soft skills that are involved. You got to be able to deal with people, but 
as the kids in school right now maybe wanting to be a civil engineer and they're kind of debating as to what they should do, what would your best advice to them be? Run. <laughs> no, no, it takes time. It takes time to learn the business. Be patient with yourself. I know a lot of kids and a lot of people that have started the business. You and I have met some of these people yeah. that are very aggressive in their desire to advance their careers before they learn the roles that they should be playing. It hurts their career in the long term to go through the paces or just put themselves to these positions without really taking the time to learn them and to learn everything they can. So be patient with, with your career. Be patient with your progression. You'll get a lot further by keeping your word, by doing the things you're, you said you're going to do, than you will by being aggressive and pursuing things. You know, Your reputation in the business is what matters the most. It's all about the people that work in the business. Like, I've done business with Cliff. I'd be really comfortable doing business with Cliff again because he's a man of his word. He does what he says he's going to do. He has a good reputation in this business. That's ev all he has. If he didn't have that, he would have no work, right? Right. I think people ignore that sometimes, that they build a certain reputation for themselves. And they don't understand what kind of reputation they're building. But it's pretty simple. Just do the things you say you're going to do. Do them right. Do the right thing. When no one's looking and you'll get a good reputation people will want to work with you again you'll you'll have a ton of friends at the business if the, if you deliver with your word it's that simple so be patient do things right deliver don't break your word and treat people fairly that's that's i think simple stuff i think the end of that is if you see something that you perceive as going the wrong direction alert the other people absolutely yeah, yeah. It's, it's like this isn't going to pan out the way you've got it planned yeah. tell them because you don't want to like surprise them well I could have told you that uh, <laughs> like, oh. yeah. really I, I, I saw this coming 10 miles away yeah it's terrible no you're right you're absolutely right and and you've seen it in, in a lot of instances that that people keep quiet for whatever reason they they don't share that especially for people that have been in business a couple of years sometimes you see things coming sort of the, remember that movie the matrix that he, yeah. the guy sees the bullets and mm -hmm. like at, at one third speed and he avoids all of them right sometimes you see things like that say something alert the other people saying hey you know this isn't going to work out very well it's always going to be the bullets that hit you from the back you, know? <laughs> you 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 won't miss all of them but at least let people know hey this is this doesn't smell right well it's better to deal with it way in advance than in the moment, you know. Construction problems don't don't age well. They fester. They don't get better. I mean, the, yeah. The the quicker you deal with them, the quicker you dispatch them, the better off everyone's going to be. But ignoring problems in construction is very costly. I, I don't know what what other advice I could give, but build a good reputation. Have people want to do work with you, want to participate with you in, in construction i think that's you don't achieve that by being a yes man you don't achieve that by just being agreeable to everything because you're gonna have conflict and the way you deal with that conflict the way you carry yourself through that conflict is extremely important i've had a ton of conflict in my career i've had i've had to deal with lawsuits with uh, subcontractor default schedule overruns budget overruns i mean every job is going to have its issues but how do you carry yourself and how do you treat the other people involved in that conflict through those issues? That's what builds a reputation over the years, right? And it's something that needs to be curated, it needs to be paid attention to. Patience.
Well, Bruno, we thank you for coming on. Thank you guys for having me. It's Sorry really to, cool. to steal a few hours of your life. But hey, no, this is really cool. I'm, I'm you know, stealing a few hours, I, have, I had this thought. This is the kind of conversation, because of the way we went through things, and things sort of jumped around, that can be listened to a few times. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. You know, like the, 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 the soft stuff skills. that you talked soft the soft skills, skills that you talked about yeah. that could be you know if you're listening to it you may not hear that the first time i'm not going to suggest that people repeat when i listen <laughs> to this again I'm, I'm really happy you guys had me over and it's, it's humbling to be able to share this with you guys and, and through the podcast as well all right well good luck in your career thank you hopefully uh, everything will go according to plan and maybe you'll be back building rockets in a few years who knows what it's who be knows <laughs> you know a recurring theme in a lot of this is Nobody does. I mean, yeah. it's been interesting to talk to people, and as they talk about their career, it's like, hey, I started here, and I thought this, and where I've ended up is completely different than what I thought it was going to be. And ah, you know, I, and I don't mean to belabor, because you said we're wrapping up, so I'll, I'll try to wrap up. But a lot of people don't give themselves the flexibility to go explore different things. They're very rigid in, okay, this is my career plan, and this is where it's going to be. But a lot of the very best things in life are on the other side of fear. You have to be uncomfortable. You have to push through that discomfort a little bit and be okay with that discomfort. You know, when I left HP, it was uncomfortable. Oh, I'll bet. Yeah, I'd been there for 16 years. But you know what? There was very cool things on the other side, and I felt uncomfortable doing it. But And, and same when I left JPL, I'm like, what am I doing? This is great. I'm happy. And same when I came to America to begin with. I was, I mean, it was, and it was an uncomfortable, uncomfortable transition. I grew up in Mexico. I lived in Cabo, and then I'm in Victorville. And I'm like, oh my god, bit of a difference. But none of the things I've done since would have been possible if I had been so uncomfortable that I went back to Cabo, yeah. right? So allow yourself a little bit of that discomfort in your life. I think you'll be surprised with the cool things that happen. Well, and you said earlier in the in the discussion, you're never going to be ready. No. The best example of that that I can give is having kids. <laughs> you know, you're never going to be ready for all the random stuff oh that's going to happen. Oh, my God. And eventually when you just decide, we're going to try this out and just yeah. go with the punches, and, and your career's got to be the same way. I mean, I think so. whatever it is in life, you just got to roll with the punches. Yeah, go, go, go be a little bit uncomfortable. Roll with the punches. Be okay with the conflict. Yeah. You know, take a couple of risks in your life. If you, like, the rest, let's say you're watching the movie of your life. When you're in your deathbed, is it going to be an interesting movie, or is it going to be super boring? <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm just saying, let me get a little interesting. Yeah, make enough that you want to watch it. <laughs> Somebody else might want to watch it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, well, thanks, Bruno. No, thanks, thank you very much. We wish you the best of luck, and and uh, be interested to see where you end up. Thank you, Kent. Thank you, Cliff. It was it was really cool to hang out with you guys. All right. Now let's go check out that picture and see if it's the same jail. There you go. Let me get everything done. <laughs>